Right, uh, let me pray for us before we look further at God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this amazingly deep, rich theological letter which is preserved for our benefits. Uh, As we reflect on it together today, we pray that your spirit would help us understand it and that we would each hear you you speaking to our hearts and our minds through these words of scripture. To your glory we pray. Amen. Uh, Opinions abound as to whether humanity is basically good or basically bad at heart. Uh, Professor Glenn Davis, the Vice-Chancellor of Melbourne University, uh, gave the 2010 Boyer Lectures. Uh, He's a secular humanist, and in his lectures he proposed that education can ultimately positively transform people and positively transform Australian society. You see, in his view, uh, knowledge is enough. Uh, His standpoint was that humanity was basically good at heart. All that was needed was education. But what's the testimony of history? Uh, Knowledge alone alone is not enough. Advances in knowledge and technology uh, are used not only for good, uh, but also for evil purposes. You see, If we educate people without changing their hearts, uh, they just become clever devils. In today's passage, we are concluding a section which provides us with God's diagnosis of humanity. It is dark and it is bleak, but it's far more realistic and it rings true to history and it rings true to our experience of life. What we're looking at today is hard, but don't you think that a hard truth is better than a sweet deceit? What we plan to do is um, to work through the passage at a reasonably quick pace, uh, just so we understand it, and then we're going to take some time to reflect on the implications and the applications of it to us today. So, uh, let's move quickly through uh, the text, starting at verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, Paul is concluding his section on Jewish lostness. He's speaking as a Jew, and he is addressing, really, uh, his Jewish readers. Look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Uh, Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So even Jews, uh, God's chosen people, uh, those who possess God's law in their sacred scriptures, even the Jews, are no better off. Both Jews and Gentiles find themselves in the jaws of a monster, uh, that of sin. Uh, They themselves are also citizens of Sin City. Uh, The Jews, God's chosen people, also fall under God's wrath. They are no different to the Gentiles. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, Andrew was with us, of course, and sharing from the, this pa- the passage before, and he talked about the doctrine of total depravity. If you recall, uh, the doctrine of total depravity is not saying there is nothing good in people. Uh, rather, it's conveying that there is no part of our being that is not marred by sin. And so, least Paul's Jewish readers be in any doubt about Paul's conclusion, 
Paul now actually backs it up from their own Bible, what Christians call uh, the Old Testament. Paul now in this passage quotes seven different Old Testament scriptural passages to support his doctrine of total depravity. Uh, Each one of these exposes how different parts of our being have been corrupted by sin. Uh, He starts in verse 10 by uh, an overall opening statement about our legal standing before God. Look at verse 10. As it is written, so now he's queuing up that he's going to be quoting lots of Old Testament passages. As it is written, uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. Uh, Righteous. It refers to our legal standing before God. Uh, To be righteous is a comment on the state of a relationship. Uh, To be righteous means that everything is right, in this case, between us and God. So, can anyone say that everything is right between themselves and God based on their own merit? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. Uh, On our own merit, no one, not even one. Why? Because we are all under sin. As this passage continues, we start to get a sense of the far-reaching blight of sin. Uh, The scriptural quotations that follow paint a horrible but comprehensive picture of human depravity. Uh, We're going to move through them very quickly, but look at them. Let's look at them together. Because we are under sin, we firstly have dull minds that don't understand God's truth. Look at verse 11a. Uh, There is no one who understands. And because we're all under sin, we have warped motives. No one wants to truly find God. Uh, Look at verse 11b. Uh, No one seeks God. Uh, Because we're all under sin, uh, we have wayward wills. Look at verse 12. All have turned away. They have together become worthless There is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, Because we're all under sin, we have depraved speech. Look at verse 13. Uh, Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Uh, Because we're all under sin, we have ruined our relationships with others. Look at verse 15. At their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. And because we are all under sin, we all have a dysfunctional attitude to God. Look finally at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So there we have it. A bleak set of quotations from the Old Testament scriptures which outline and support from the Jewish Bible that this doctrine of total depravity of humanity is all there. It applies to Jews as well as to Greeks and to Hebrews, uh, to Gentiles. So, uh, concluding our section, verses 19 to 20, uh, Paul now moves to conclude his conclusion. If every person is under sin, uh, where does that leave us before a holy God? And the answer is that each of us remains, therefore, liable. Every creature is accountable to the Creator. 
Every person stands guilty as charged. There is nothing we can say in our defense, not a squeak. All we can do is remain silent. Look at verse 19. And now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And God's law is of no help to our defense attorney. Rather, it gives power to the prosecution. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So you see, uh, God's law, uh, it's not a checklist that we keep. Rather, it's a benchmark that we fail. God's law exposes our failure. It exposes our unrighteousness. And it leaves us silent in the dock before a holy God. We have nothing to say in our defense. So I told you we'd be quick. Uh, if you're thinking that's the end of the sermon and you're going to get out early, um, we're not going to conclude yet. What we're going to do now is reflect on what we've seen together and just draw out some implications for us today. Uh, we're going to pose uh, several questions. Um, firstly, are we any better? We're going to be thinking about Paul's statement, are we any better? Also, uh, does no one seek God? Because that's what Paul is saying. Nobody truly seeks God. And then we're going to see there's a hint in this passage of a cure to the problem of sin. So, are we any better? Uh, not at all, says Paul. Uh, let's look back again at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Uh, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. It's worth remembering who is saying this. It is Paul, the former Pharisee. If you know anything of Paul's life and his story, uh, before his Damascus Road experience and his conversion, uh, he was the top gun. Uh, he was the best of the best in the art of being religious and moral. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, if you like, the Pharisee par excellence. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, another letter in the New Testament written by Paul, he looks back in that letter to his former way of life. And he recounts there how he could tick off every box when it came to morality and religi religiosity. Look at chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 4 onwards. This is Paul speaking. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, that's another way of saying his own self-righteousness, uh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He says, I had everything going for me. I had the right pedigree. I came from the right people group, even the right, right tribe in that people group. I was a, family, a, a, a Pharisee. I did everything I could to live a moral, upright life. And yet now, you see, Paul understands the gospel. Now Paul understands his true standing before a holy God based on his own merit. And he sees things from a completely different point of view. 
Paul now realizes that without Christ, before a holy God, he is, in his own words, no better than the most immoral and debauched pagan. Look at verse 9 again. Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. We are no better. Uh, The moral and the immoral, the religious and the secular. Uh, It's interesting that this would represent a radical challenge to many people's understanding of Christianity today. Uh, You see, many people today assume that Christianity is simply a call to be moral and religious. And of course, on that understanding, some rise to the challenge. Uh, They think, yeah, I can do that. Uh, They embark on a path of self-reform. And in so doing, often they become very judgmental of others. They look down their noses. Others, thinking that's what Christianity is saying, say, that's not for me. I've no interest in being moral and religious. There's no appeal. But here's the point. What does one of the most moral and religious people who has ever lived say? He says this, am I any better than the most immoral and irreligious person? And he's concluded already, not at all. So, you see, whatever Christianity is, it can't be just a call to morality and religion because it doesn't work. Before a holy God, based on our own merits, we are no better. Do you see how radical this is? You see, there is no other worldview, there is no other religion, there is no other philosophy which says anything like it. Because basically the message is this, no matter how hard we try at self-reform, at being moral and religious, it makes no difference. Before a holy God, we are no better than the rapist or the paedophile. And a radical implication flows out of this. You see, if I get this, and when the penny drops, it's actually going to change and transform the way that I view other people. When I grasp this, will I still be able to look down my nose at others who maybe have not made the grade, in my opinion? Will I still be able to say, well, I'm better than you? I'm not. I can no longer say, I'm better than you. Instead, I have to say, along with Paul, I am no better than you because I am also under sin. And do you know what effect that will have? It will radically rehumanize the human race in my eyes it will radically rehumanize the human race in my eyes. Uh, It wasn't until I had uh, chickens, uh, chooks as you call them, that I finally and fully understood the term pecking order. Uh, We started off with four chickens, although it didn't last for long. Uh, But it very soon became evidence that a social hierarchy had been established amongst our birds. Uh, One in particular ruled the roost. Uh, She was quite a madam. And those who didn't uh, defer to her self-appointed queen got the pecking treatment. It brought the uh, the term pecking order home with a new vitality and clarity. Humanity also has this innate tendency to establish 
a pecking order. You see, in every society, in every culture, structures emerge where people establish a pecking order. They find others to whom they can look down their noses at. They find others where they say, yeah, at least I'm better than that person. Uh, Maybe on the basis of profession, gender, sexuality, uh, morality, race, or nationality. Uh, Did you know that there is even a pecking order in prisons? Uh, You'd maybe think that in a society where the common denominator is carrying a criminal conviction, that it would be the great leveler. But no, there is a pecking order in prisons. In a prison, who are the worst criminals who everyone else looks down on? Uh, What sort of offender is it of whom the others say, the inmates say, well, at least I'm not guilty of that? It's pedophiles. But even in a prison, there's a pecking order. But the gospel counters this innate human tendency to say, I'm better than that person. The gospel destroys our tendency to establish a pecking order. Instead, the cry of the gospel-shaped heart is, I am no better than that person. And that radically changes the way we view people. And it radically changes, therefore, the way we will treat people. The gospel destroys pecking orders, and it's the great leveler. And the wonderful implication is this. Suddenly, we now love and respect all kinds of people to whom previously we wouldn't have given the time of day. Now we have the perspective to be able to really love all people. And God's Spirit gives us the power, if we're trusting in Christ, then love all people. So you see, the gospel radically rehumanizes the human race. The gospel's the great leveler. And it's the cure to judgmentalism. That mindset of chapter 2 in Romans that says, I'm better than you. So that's the first thing we've reflected on. Uh, Paul's charge that he and we are no better. Uh, Let's look secondly at Paul's charge that nobody seeks God. Uh, Doesn't it sound a little harsh when Paul says in verse 11 um, that there is, and I quote again, Uh, No one who seeks God. Um, Even though there's been a large-scale movement away from traditional Christianity in Western countries, there has been a resurgence of interest in spirituality. Uh, People are searching for something in the spiritual sphere of life. Uh, Maybe you've heard in Sydney we have uh, the Mind Body Spirit Festival. Uh, It's coming up in May, if you're interested, down at Darling Harbour. Looking on their website, and particularly some of the seminars available this year, uh, I can give you a little taster for what is to come. Uh, One seminar is, and I quote, traditional Inca shamanic opening of sacred space. Sounds intriguing, doesn't it? Uh, Another one, sacred signs from the other side. Goodness. Uh, A third one, awakening the enchanted soul. Wow. Uh, I'm sure many people are going to be signing up, and if you do go, uh, let me know what you find out. 
Uh, I knew a Christian woman uh, once who was an internationally renowned heritage consultant. Uh, Her job took her all over the world as she sought to preserve aspects of culture which were under threat and hopefully which were worth preserving. As a result, she met people from many different walks of life. Uh, She developed friendships with some very sincere devotees of other religions. Uh, One day, my friend, uh, she shared with me how she struggled to believe the Bible's diagnosis that all these people were lost without Christ. She'd come across some very devout religious people from other religions. Uh, She said, how could it be that these people were not actually seeking God, as Paul says? They seem to be seeking God. They seem to be very sincere. So there, you see, is the issue. Uh, Isn't Paul being a little harsh when he says, nobody seeks God? And to answer it, we need to understand what Paul is actually meaning when he says nobody seeks God. And we need to understand in particular that God does not just look on the outward form of what we do, but also on our hearts and the motive with which we do it. And that is what Paul is taking into account. So what does Paul mean? I think he's saying this. Without God's help, no one can truly seek to know the true God. Uh, Unaided, uh, the sinful human heart does not possess that desire to simply know and to love God for who he is, uh, to worship him, to enjoy him, to rejoice in him, just to delight in him for who he is. Unaided, the human, sinful human heart does not have that desire. Now, the sinful human heart is riven with many desires to seek God, but not so much for who he is, but I would say, and Paul would say, for what he can give us. You see, seeking things from God is not the same as seeking God. There are many reasons why people might seek God, but they're not truly seeking him. Uh, Much of um, religion is an attempt to try and get control of God. Uh, It may be to secure his blessing. It may be to placate God or the gods. It may be to get answers to prayer. Maybe to get released from guilt or to experience spiritual power or peace or experience or to fill the emptiness that is felt inside. But you see, in all these cases, it's not just seeking God to know him for who he is, but it is seeking God to get things from him. It is self-centered and it's self-serving. It's not the desire to worship the true God, but to serve the self. And Paul is saying that sinful self-centeredness controls all our spiritual search for meaning and experience. We're going to try and get the blessings from God, but we're also going to try and keep control of our lives. We're going to expect God to serve us and to shape himself to fit our needs. So here's the point. Without God's help, nobody but nobody in their own strength can truly seek to know the true God. Uh, If you're somebody here today who is already trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, you're a Christian, uh, you will know, of course, that uh, you do know God. Uh, You do know the true God. Maybe you're saying, 
how did I get to this point? Uh, did I not seek God to get to the point where I now know him? Uh, yes, a Christian is somebody who has got to the point where they now know God through seeking him, but the point is this. Who gave the person in the first place, who gave you your desire to seek God? Unaided, the sinful human heart cannot seek God to know him truly for who he is. Unaided. But with God's help, when God's spirit starts to stir us up, it is through that means that we actually then have the desire to seek to know the true God and to know him truly. It's interesting, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, another New Testament letter, it says this. It talks about the hope that God will grant them, that's people who don't yet know Jesus, repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. God is doing a granting. It's a giving. It's a gift. He's going to grant these people. He's going to give them something they need in order to know him truly. The gift of repentance, the gift of conviction of sin, their need to trust in Jesus so they get a knowledge of the truth. I remember um, back in the late 90s, I was doing a Christianity Explored course, which is basically a six-week course, uh, which is for people who want to just find out more about what the Christian message is from the Bible. It's that sort of course where people come along, there's no obligation to make a commitment, but they can just come along to look and to read the Bible and to ask their questions. Uh, the course is basically structured, the first two sessions, the first two weeks, uh, are looking at the problem the Bible says we all have, which is what we're seeing in Romans. And in fact, it was working with uh, this section in Romans. Uh, by the end of the second session, uh, or during the second session, as we were working with this um, section of Romans, which is very dark, there was one lady sitting there in the group, and you could see she was very, very uncomfortable. Uh, I don't often see it, but she was literally squirming in her seat. She could hardly sit still, and finally she could contain it no longer. And she put up her hand and said, look, uh, this is all very dark. Can't we just move on to the good news? And I said to her, actually, we can't move on, and we can't really appreciate the good news until we really understand and see the bad news. So just sit tight. We'll get to the good news, but first we do need to understand the bad news. And by the end of week six, she came up to the end and said, you're right, actually. I would have just glossed over this whole Jesus stuff if I hadn't really understood the bad news first. We do tend to squirm in our seats when we go through these first three chapters of Romans. But they are so important. Because before we can understand the good news, we have to hear the bad news. And the bad news is this. There is no part of our being that is not infected by the sickness of sin. Before a holy God, we're all under sin. There is no one who is righteous in right standing before him. Not even one. In spite of our best endeavors, our best mor morality and our best attempts at being good. And we're all therefore left accountable to God and standing condemned in his dock. And next week, we're going to come to the good news. It's the hinge, the turning points in Romans, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll be looking at the first next uh, six verses. It's this wonderful turning point, and it moves from the bad news to the good news. Please do come back and hear the good news. Don't remain in the dark. But even in our passage today, there is a hint of the cure, a hint of something which prepares us for the good news. And to use the words of Garfunkel and Simon, 
It's the sound of silence. The sound of silence. Look at verse 19 again. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. When we see the darkness of our hearts, it's uncomfortable. Our natural tendency is to squirm and even to get defensive. We may even try and fix it ourselves. We may try harder to be better, but none of that is going to make any difference. The only way to a cure for the sickness of our sin-ridden hearts is silence. No merits to plead, no excuse to make. All we need is to acknowledge our need. All we need is nothing. As we're going to sing shortly in our closing hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let me conclude with a few brief reflections on where that leaves us. The gospel is very humbling. If we are a Christian today, we cannot claim any credit for our conversion because we didn't seek God because of our bright intellect or our noble heart. We are where we are now because God stirred our hearts to seek him first. He worked in us, convincing us of our darkness and our need for silence before him. And he worked in us to then show us the brilliant radiance of Christ and our need to put our faith in him. So you see, the point is this. As this truth truth sinks deeper into our hearts, a wonderful train reaction is triggered. We experience a greater sense of gratitude. We say, God... Thanks for being merciful to me, a sinner. Without your work in my heart, I would be nowhere now. Thanks for forbearing with me, for being patient with me. Maybe tonight in your prayers or tomorrow, why don't you spend some time, if you're already trusting in Jesus, to reflect on that journey as to how you came to faith and reflect with a heart of gratitude saying, God, thank you for saving me. There's another implication which flows out of that for those who are trusting in Jesus. Because which of us knows what lies ahead? Maybe as Christians, sometimes we wonder, will I be able to keep going in my faith until the very end? And yet, when we know and understand what we're seeing in the scriptures today, we know that God works in us to bring us to faith, but also to sustain us in our faith. And therefore, we can have confidence and we can move forward with comfort. Look at Philippians 1 verse 6, another New Testament letter. It assures Christians there that he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And finally, if you are somebody who is not yet trusting in Jesus, and you're on that journey... If you are earnestly seeking God at the moment, then it is a sign that God is at work in your heart and your mind. And the point is this. Continue on that journey, that wonderful journey, but continue humbly. 
Why not pray, God, if you are there, please reveal yourself to me. I want to know the truth about you. But unaided, I don't have the capacity. My heart and my mind does not have the capacity. I need your help. Reveal yourself to me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the darkness of Romans, which tells us that most important and sobering truth, that before you and nobody stands righteous, we all are under sin and have to remain silent. Thank you that you have sent Jesus. uh, And thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news, that ultimately we can know you through trusting in Christ. And we pray, therefore, that as we all continue on that journey of investigating who Christ is and going deeper in our faith in him, that you would continue that work of stirring up our hearts and revealing the truth to us and drawing us to a deeper faith in him. Amen.